0: welcome it's great to be here and uh, uh, if you're a guest we're glad you're here we pray God's blessing on you I'm one of the pastors here uh, the guy that uh, most Sundays gets to teach and proclaim God's word we're going through the book of Exodus we're just starting we'll be in chapter one so you can be turning there um, and by the way we're not going to go through every single chapter as a separate message uh, so some people have wondered is this series you know 40 messages but we uh, we're going to kind of condense certain sections, not for the sake of time, actually, uh, but for the sake of the theme. There's certain themes and sections of Exodus that fit together over multiple chapters. So um, it's, I think, about 20 messages total. So we'll finish about uh, around the summertime. So we're in chapter one. We're just starting out, and uh, this is a wonderful chapter. Um, it's a great opening for the whole story. It's really uh, helpful to understand the rest of the story. Just what we we're going to see in chapter one will set the stage for what's to come. There's certain certainly great lessons in this chapter, but it does set the stage. It reminds me of actually how good literature works, good movies work. Uh, If you are a fan of Star Wars, you saw Return of the Jedi, I imagine. And uh, do you remember the opening scene of Return of the Jedi? So so there's been a lot happening in the storyline, and they're going to revisit the storyline in Return of the Jedi. And so they open up with... um, with basically Darth Vader going on to the new Death Star, right? And he goes there and there's a short little segment. It's less, it's like four, maybe five minutes. Uh, and so you realize, you know, oh wait, wait, the Death Star's back where there's a new Death Star. And then it quickly goes to uh, Tatooine where R2-D2 and C-3PO are walking through the desert up to Jabba the Hutt's place. And that's how the movie starts, right? And, and so it sets the stage. You're like, oh wow, Death Star and... These guys are doing something here. Uh, it's Tatooine, you know, what's going on here? Um, and so it kind of builds your expectation and sets some of the themes, actually, for the whole movie. Well, that's what Genesis 1 does. It does a great job of giving you some key background and, and uh, some key lessons that really set the stage for the rest of the book, and really the entirety of Scripture as well. So we're going to dig into just this chapter, just this opening scene, and learn from it. And, and I'll tell you up front what I... What I think the core lesson here is that our God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. He keeps his promises even when things all around us seem to go dark. He remains the faithful promise-keeper. Wow, what a lesson uh, we all need for life now. But this is the lesson of Exodus 1. So we're going to dig in. Let's pray, and then I'll read through the whole chapter. And then we'll go learn from it together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter and all that it contains. Lord, this isn't just a story uh, for entertainment. Uh, this is a story that's true and a story that's meant to instruct us and not just to inform us, but to transform us. This this chapter was intended to equip your people to be your people. And so, Lord, us today in line with all your people throughout history, all those who Place their faith in you. Lord, uh, we need this lesson of chapter 1. So I pray, speak to us. Speak to us. And You know all of our situations, all the details, um, not only the things we're aware of, but the things we're not even aware of. You know us completely, and you know what we need to hear. So I pray, Lord, we'd hear from you through your word. You'd apply to our lives. You'd change us and teach us, and you'd glorify your name through it. Because the best thing is to end up looking to you and trusting you and enjoying you. So do all this. Use me, Lord. I need you. Thank you that you're faithful. And glorify your name through it, we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. We'll have it on the uh, screen here or the wall. Uh, But if you have a Bible in your hand, way better. And actually, if you have your Bible journal, you can follow along in that. Um, Anyone here want a Bible journal that didn't get one? Toby, okay. Yeah, yes. Uh, great. A few of you. Oh, we don't have them. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we don't have them. Too bad. Huh. No, I asked because... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Early bird gets the worm. Um, no, uh, I'll order some more. So, yeah. I want, ha- I want you guys to have that. I want you to have that really, like I said last week, to, for a lifetime, to build a library of God's Word and how you've been learning from His Word. So, anyhow, here we are. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us, and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. God's word from Exodus chapter 1. We're going to dig into this. Again, main point of this story is that our God is a promise-keeping God who never forgets us. Even amidst persecution and trouble, He is there and He provides for us. Even amidst persecution and trouble, He provides. So He's the promise-keeping God. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, we're just going to talk about Him as the promise-keeper. Then we're going to talk about this this reality of persecution and provision that go together in the story, and really in the rest of Scripture, we see it as well. So, he's the promise keeping God first. It, it begins, chapter one begins with listing the names. It says, These are the names, and that actually is the title of the Hebrew uh, version of this book. They don't call it Exodus. Exodus means, you know, leaving. Uh, we, we call it that in the, the Western world, um, in English. But the Hebrew name is These Are the Names because that's how it starts. And you might look at that and think, you know, well, yeah, I've seen this before, that whole thing, you know, so-and-so begets so-and-so, and and it's one of those lists. Let's just move on and get to the story. Well, that's actually not how it's supposed to function. It's here in Scripture for a reason. And actually genealogies in Scripture, so lists of families and descendants in Scripture are not there just because, you know, people are into genealogy. It's a trace of God's activity through his people. There's a, there's a back story here. We've, you know, we're coming out of Genesis into Exodus. This is the whole first five books all go together, by the way. And so if you're following the storyline, you come out of Genesis into Exodus. Uh, and in, uh, in chapter 46, just a little bit before this, of Genesis, it talks about uh, the descendants. And it's actually tracing back these descendants. They go all the way back to Abraham. And and God's promise, God's dealing with Abraham. So this isn't just a genealogy. This is a trace of God's promise because his promise comes through Abraham and his descendants. And in the old covenant, that was his biological descendants. And so it's a trace of God's activity. And so it's looking back to the storyline in Genesis as well. So if you backed up to chapter 46, you'd see some similar words. God speaks to Jacob, it says, in verse 2. Of chapter 46. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And then verse 8 of chapter 46 says, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob, Jacob, and his sons. It's almost the same as verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. And so the context is God speaking to Jacob. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to work, and you're going to go down to this land. Don't be afraid. And then it jumps into verse 8. These are the names. It's listing the names. It's It's tracing God's work through his people. That's what a genealogy in Scripture is about. And by the way, we we won't do this now, but we could go to the other genealogies and see the trace of God's grace, the trace of God's promise through his people and through the names. Actually, uh, many of the names and lists are fascinating when you dig into them. So that's what it's doing here. It's pointing us back to the storyline and ultimately pointing us to Abraham because Abraham uh, is, is the one who kind of got this all rolling. Abraham was called out of his country. He was called out of his family network to follow God. And part of the storyline in scripture is mankind has been running away from God and God's the initiator, God's the pursuer. and So God pursues Abraham and calls him to himself. He calls him to relate to him and to believe him and, and follow him. And, and this story of Exodus and everything that's going on here and the original audience as they listen to this, they have this background of the story of Abraham now they would have had the oral story and then Moses puts it down in writing in the book of Genesis and this is their story the the heritage of Abraham and God's work with Abraham and so it's good just to quickly review the promise to Abraham this is the promise that God made and God's gonna keep in what he does here in chapter 1 and following so backing up Genesis chapter 12 early on as uh, as Abraham's introduced It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. I think we have it to project. Good. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So God calls Abraham, or his name is Abram at this point, and as he relates to God, his name is changed to Abraham. Uh, God calls him out of his background, out of living in darkness, out of living in ignorance of God, out of living in rebellion against God. calls him to himself. And Abram believes God and responds and makes that huge step. Think of it, to leave his hometown, to leave his extended family, to go out on his own. Um, He believes God. And if you follow the the storyline that that relationship that here is, is somewhat informal, it's real, it's intense, of course, to hear God speak to you and tell you to leave, that's pretty intense. But God formalizes that relationship with a covenant. So his promise is connected to covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn agreement. It's a formalized agreement. And, and we do it. We make agreements. We make business agreements, business arrangements. Covenant is really an ancient form of, of a business or relational arrangements. and it's a solemn agreement it, it's legally binding uh... it shaped your whole life it was a very very important agreement and so god makes a formal covenant with abraham based on his relationship with abraham and his call called abraham so chapter fifteen we move forward and we, we can read through that quickly it says after these things the word of the lord came to abram in a vision fear not abram i am your shield your reward shall be very great verse 5 and he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them then he said to him so shall your offspring be and he abram believed the lord and it counted to him as righteousness hugely important statement in scripture abram's relationship with god was based on god's promise and abraham believing him and god counted him righteous through faith it wasn't that abraham got his line all lined up his life all lined up and you know, did everything he ought to do, and he, he was truly good and pure in every way. And then God said, you're righteous. He simply said, I believe you, Lord. I want to follow you. And God said, I count you righteous. It's a gracious promise. And then it gets filled out more in the storyline in chapter 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, out of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me up. Uh, a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is, this is a covenant. This is an ancient covenant that's happening. A uh, little bit weird for us, right? I mean, we don't. when you make a business agreement, you don't say, get a goat, we're going to cut it in half, and we're going to walk between it. But that's how you did it. Then it was very solemn agreement, and the cutting and the sacrifice basically said, uh, may I end up like these animals if I don't follow through on my end of the bargain. And So you would walk through the the cut-up animals. And by the way, that's part of the tradition in marriage, why a couple will walk down the aisle between two sides of their family. It's a picture of a covenant saying, may I be like this if I don't hold up my covenant. so marriage is a picture of this covenant as well. So anyhow, that happens. The parts are laid out. The animals are laid out. And then in verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants or slaves, same word, there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amrites is not yet complete. They're in the promised land at this point. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river and then so forth. So the promise of the land and the formalization of this covenant. And so they split the pieces up. Normally both parties would walk between and they have obligations. Usually covenants are made between a powerful powerful king and a subject, an important subject. And there's there's these obligations and, and duties of both. And then they walk through and they agree on that. And it's a binding, lifelong covenant. So the parts get cut. God makes this proclamation, and, and where is Abram when the smoking pot and the fire go through the middle of the pieces? Is he walking along with them? He's asleep. So this covenant, which, we, which theologians call the covenant of grace, and it's a picture of, of the full covenant of grace, which is ultimately performed by Jesus. It's fulfilled by Jesus. It's a one-way covenant. It's a gracious covenant from God while Abram is asleep. And it's a picture of its fulfillment in Jesus because Jesus went to the cross, died for your sins and rose again before you knew him and while you were spiritually asleep. And because of his grace, he then works in your life, gives you the ability to understand and receive Him, that it's from God and his grace. It's a gracious covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And it's the basis, not only for Abram, but also for Isaac and Jacob and all the descendants and what we see in Exodus. The people of God themselves are supposed to get these truths and, and understand this is what God's like. He's a God who makes promises and they're gracious promises and he keeps them and we're to believe them and receive them. So this covenant of Moses is, that we're going to see develop in Exodus is meant to uh, be engaged in, in the context of the covenant of grace, not apart from that. And the problem with the covenant with Moses is when you detach it from the covenant of grace, the covenant of Abraham, and it becomes a works covenant where if I can do this, somehow I can maintain my status with God. And that can, you can only love him and obey him if you live in his grace. So that's the story. That's the background. It's so important to get. Um, Abraham receives that. By the way, notice in Genesis 15... What is it that goes between the pieces? How does God represent his, premise, his presence there? It's a smoking pot, right? And, um, so it's smoke and it's flaming torch. It's smoke and it's flame. If you read ahead in Exodus, you might remember, God goes with them, represents his presence with a pillar of cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire. So this is way back in Genesis 15. He's representing himself the same way, tying into Exodus. It's the same God. And so these stories are meant to go together. That's that's the point here. And so this is important background because this story is opening up with this. And we're going to see actually how God works out his faithfulness. But it starts first listing the descendants and listing them coming down and reiterating what's happening. And this points all the way back to Genesis 15 where God said, this is exactly what's going to happen and i'm going to bring you out. And so the reader, the original audience as they listen to this, they're going to be getting these clues. They're not going to say, "Ah, oh, the genealogies, those are boring. Why pay attention?" They're going to be like, "Oh, what's going on? Oh, that's just like the language there." And so there's a should be a combination of of hope. How is the promise-keeping God going to act now in this part of the story? And yet, as you read it, you see right away there's trouble, right? There's some intense persecution, really intense. And so there's a lesson in this. And this is, again, the point, the main point of this chapter. The promise-keeping God is faithful. He will, he will fulfill. He will take care of his people. But he will do that as we go through adversity. And he will provide for us even in adversity and bring us through. Such an important point to get about God and what it means to be his people. But first and most important, he is a faithful promise-making promise-keeping God. He's gracious. And that's what we should get in this whole story is is how faithful, how determined he is. He doesn't forget his people. He knew what was going to happen ahead of time, and he determined to rescue them and to intervene uh, in their situation, even though the most powerful king in the whole world and the most powerful nation that there is, it has them in their grip. God's going to come in in his power, determined to rescue his people. And so we learn about God and His character and how faithful He is and how determined He is and how He follows through on His promises. That's how this is meant to function in our lives, to to know God. And I would submit that we can struggle at times believing that God is so faithful. When we face adversity, we think He's given up. He isn't a promise-keeping God. And, And we can let circumstances and trouble kind of warp our picture of God and not see Him As the promise keeper, the promise maker, the promise keeper, who sees it through. And again, this story is to function for us, to help us not do that. To recognize how determined the Lord is. Uh, I I found a story this week about determination. Uh, There's a man named Rod Hobbs. And 32 years ago, I think we have a picture of him to show. uh, He moved out of a tough home situation. He was only 15 years old. So he had a a tough family life. And he basically lived life uh, without a family. Starting at 15, uh, right around the time he moved out, he found out that the man he thought was his father wasn't his biological father, and his uh, the situation with his mom and so so forth wasn't good, and he wasn't able. To, she wouldn't tell him any of his backstory, who his biological father was, what had happened, so forth, and so it went silent. And so Rod uh, was determined to find out what had happened, and he spent 32 years trying to find his biological father. He, uh, he employed private detectives, and then he used DNA experts. And finally, particularly nowadays, with the DNA information that's out there, he was able to find a cousin, a biological cousin, who then uh, was able to connect him with his dad. It turns out he found out the story is that Rod's pregnant mom left his dad, Bob Kopolakis, uh suddenly and without a trace back when, when Bob was in the Navy. One day he came home and she was gone, and she look, he looked and never was able to find her. Um, but finally, Rod found Bob in October 2019. They met face-to-face. He traveled to Florida, met his biological sister, Brittany, there at the airport. Um, imagine the scene as he met his, his only sister that he knew. Um, and then they went to the dad's house and in a surprise visit, met his dad, cried, embraced. His dad said, sorry, sorry for time we've missed but it was 32 years he was determined and and then rewarded after 32 years and and it's a picture i think of, of our god our promise keeping god is determined and he he is faithful to chase us down and to help us and to reach us and to meet us in our adversity and to fulfill his promises he follows through he is determined way more determined than than rod or anybody ever would be as wonderful as that story is this story is fantastic And how our God follows through graciously to redeem his people, to act, to deliver them from Pharaoh. Is this the God you know? I'm sure if you knew Rod, you'd think of him affectionately. If you were part of his biological family, like, wow, you didn't give up. You chased us down and found us. That's how we should feel about our God. He's a faithful God. He, keeps, he makes His promises. He keeps His promises. We belong to Him. He's there for us. And I, would think, uh, I think that too often, again, we let circumstances and troubles, and, and there are intense ones here in chapter 1, define what we think of God, and we end up thinking that He's like a deadbeat dad. You know what I mean by deadbeat dad, right? A dad that's left his family, refuses to support the family in any way. He walks out on the family, a deadbeat dad. And we think that God's like that. We think, you know, I've been going through these, these troubles, and where is God? He doesn't care for me. But this story is meant to help us understand it's not what he's like. And we can't allow adversity to define his character because he is over and above adversity. He understands it. He even uses it for good. He makes promises. He keeps his promises. And certainly for us, we know the rest of the story. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus. So God himself, God the Son, takes on flesh, lives the perfect life suffers, enters into our humanity, dies for our sins, lives a hard life, of, of, but a life full of love and service. <clears throat> Goes to the cross, pays for our sins, rises again victorious over sin and death. For us! And fulfills the promise in that. And then through simple faith and the course of time, the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see this wonderful promise made and fulfilled in Jesus. And so... We can stand on that. The the sureness of what Christ has done. We can stand on the storyline we see in Exodus 1 and elsewhere. This is what God's like. He's not a deadbeat dad. He's a faithful dad. He's a faithful father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, three in one. They are faithful. And this story calls us to, to put our hope and our trust in him. And to wait on him. I would submit to you that... That our wanderings from God, our temptation to sin, comes because we're tired of waiting. And we want to fix something or or get a fix that will get us through. And we're to be strengthened instead in hope. As we read the story, as we recount what he's done, as we remember most of all what he's done in Jesus, and as we look back at what he's done in our own lives and the lives of others, that strengthens us to say, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to hope in God to take care of this situation. He will come through. He's the faithful promise-keeping God. Well, let's continue, because this is set in the context of great adversity. We see in the story, uh, verse 8, something happens. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So the storyline takes a twist as there's a new king who doesn't know Joseph. The background, of course... Uh, Joseph was a big hero in Egypt. They loved him. He saved them from the famine. He saved his own people. So everything was good when Joseph was around. And then probably lasted for a little while. It was good as long as people remember Joseph. But there's a new king. Probably a new dynasty that arises that knew nothing of Joseph. And things change. Totally change. This new pharaoh, this new king comes in and, and he, uh, is, he sees the Hebrews as a threat. Part of what has gone on, though, is they have grown from 70 or so people to filling the land. They multiply again and again and again. Uh, actually, that word for multiply is, is throughout this passage. We see it uh, four different times um, in this passage, this whole idea of multiplying. So, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So it's interesting. It's a double-edged sword because it's actually a picture of God's blessing on them. Because remember he had said to Abraham, what? Go out and count the stars. This is what your descendants will be like. This is part of fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So promises being fulfilled, God is multiplying the people, uh, multiplying the descendants of Abraham, and they're meant eventually to bless all the nations. And yet at the same time, it's creating a threat to Pharaoh because he sees all the people. They fill the land. There's hundreds of thousands if not millions of them. Now some time has gone on of course. This is from the time of Abraham to the time of Moses roughly 600 years. But they've multiplied. They've filled the land. They're everywhere. And he uh, feels threatened. And so he decides to be shrewd with his advisors. Come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Actually, the word escape can also mean cover the land. In other words, they'll take over. So let's be shrewd with them. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So they enslave them. There's too many of them, so they enslave them. And so they want to crush them. They want to get slave labor as well. They want to crush them. They want to create the conditions where they can no longer multiply Is what's going on. Because if you are in slavery, you don't thrive. You don't have the food you need. You don't live long. Your body is treated brutally. Recently, uh, they've excavated graves in New York City, the graves of the uh, original African slaves that were there in the city back in the 1600s and 1700s. And they've look, been looking at the skeletons and, and creating an area for, the, for this graveyard. It's actually horrific what they're finding. The way, the way that they were treated, the, the grave. So many of the skeletal remains show significant abuse. They found a woman somewhere between 15 and 24, a young woman. She had broken bones throughout her body at the time of her death. Her arms and legs were shattered, her backbone broken, her skull fractured. A woman who was 50 had two healed fractures of the right hand. She had eight breaks to her arms and legs, pelvis, and spine. Uh, a, a 50-year-old man had more than 20 fractures. His, only his skull had not been broken. During his lifetime, he had broken his collarbone uh, and then looked like he had died of other injuries. Uh, many more like that. Children as well, multiple fractures. They looked at, they analyzed the, the, uh, the bones and the arms um, and basically uh, the calcification that can happen from overuse. And basically, they, they were, I mean young, like children, with, with calcification, because they were abused by heavy lifting, lifting heavy weights every day, all day long. It was brutal. Slavery was brutal, and people were oppressed. You don't, you don't thrive under slavery. You, you tend to have a short life, and you die, and, and that's the brutality of, of American slavery and Egyptian slavery. Yet We see here that even though they are doing this, it says in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. This isn't saying, you know, that somehow they're just genetically superior or something. Um, The point of that, seeing that they were brutalized and yet they multiplied, is to see that the miraculous supernatural God of promise is at work. And even though they're being brutalized, and even though it's normal, to decline in population under such harsh conditions, they're growing and they're spreading. God's with them. And so these things are mixed together in Scripture. They they go together. The fact that there's adversity and yet there's promise and there's multiplication. And that word multiply resonates throughout this chapter and and it resonates throughout Genesis as God makes His promises to multiply His people. And so God's at work, even though they're going through terrible adversity. He's there, and he's multiplying them. He's the promise keeper. He's fulfilling his promises. He's sustaining them, even through probably one of the most brutal things you can do to a human being, enslave them. And yet it gets worse, right? So Pharaoh goes to the midwives, Chipra and Pua. Now, they are, these women are, are not simply the midwives, most likely. They're supervisors of the midwives because the population is very large and two women could not handle all the births in a you know, million-person population. right? So they're probably supervisors of the midwives that, uh, for the Hebrew people, separate than the Egyptian midwives. Um, they're likely, actually, probably a little bit older, and it's likely that they never had their own kids. And so they're able to work full-time. They don't have a family. They don't have grandchildren. They can work full-time to do this midwife thing. And so Pharaoh says, you know what? I want you to make sure that whenever there's a birth in a Hebrew home, If it's a boy, that boy gets killed. And so now it's plan B on Pharaoh's part. Not only am I going to enslave them, I'm going to kill the boys. I'm going to do genocide, really. Slavery is genocide. Now infanticide. It doesn't get worse than killing babies. And it's a terrible thing that's happened. And yet God works through these midwives. Whatever means God needs to use, he will use to accomplish his sovereign purposes, to be faithful. And so this is a picture of different means, different situation, different means. Now, now there's another situation, and God puts in the hearts, really, of the midwives. They fear God, it says, and they refuse to do it. And they're really putting their lives on the line. This is Pharaoh, right? I mean, when Pharaoh says, do it, you do it, or you die. And so their step, their fear of God is really bold. It's a bold faith. And it's a bold obedience to say no, and they don't do it. And, and, and then Pharaohs, of course, calls them in. What's going on? I see boys out there. There's not supposed to be any boys. Well, we try, but these women, they're just they're vigorous. They're blessed. And before we get there, they're having babies. And then they're honored, actually. Think about their, this. They're honored to be here in Scripture. Their names are captured. There's very few names in Scripture. These women are named specifically because the honor do them to obey God in the face of death it makes me think of Mary who anointed Jesus feet and said, and the Lord said your name is going to be remembered these women are like that they're faithful women and God uses these faithful women and blesses them in the, in, in response to their faithfulness he brings blessing to them he brings them their own families it says they probably were infertile previously and they're able to have kids So even amidst all this terrible stuff, there's blessing, there's God orchestrating things, God is in control. And the story continues though, of course, we're going to see this, this leads into chapter 2. That doesn't work, so then he commands all the people, all his people, the whole nation. Every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast him to the Nile. So it's not just through the midwives now, everybody, grab that kid, out of the arms of the mom, and throw it in the river. That's going to lead us into what happens next. We're going to see the same thing. But in all this, we see this pattern, and it's so important to get. Here it is in chapter 1 of Exodus. Of the promise-keeping God being faithful to us, even amidst adversity and persecution, even amidst terrible persecution, there's still multiplication, there's still provision. And it's important to understand that. It's important to understand that, that this is part of the reality of living in this world until final deliverance comes. There will be a day when Christ returns and there will be no more sin. There will be no more trials. There will be no more persecution. There will be no more of our own rebellion. There will be no more of rebellion of, of mankind either. He will fully and final, finally deliver us. But that doesn't mean that he's not faithful to fulfill the promises. And that doesn't mean he's not faithful amidst the seasons now. To still be the same God and still to bring, bring blessing and provision. And so uh, I could journey through uh, Romans 8. Um, I, maybe I'll do that really quickly, but Romans 8, big chapter in Romans. And the storyline of Romans is, is God's righteousness through Christ and our salvation in Christ through faith alone. It points back to Abraham, wonderful storyline. We follow it through, we get to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is meant to be a picture now of this new life in Christ, this wonderful new life because of Christ and his life. We're forgiven, we're counted righteous, the Spirit of God now dwells in us. God, the eternal, infinite, glorious, holy God lives in us. There's new life, there's a community calls us to, all this blessing. And yet, if you read through chapter 8, it's just like Exodus 1. So it starts out, you know, verse 1 Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Wonderful good news. But then if you read through the, that section, get to you get to ch- uh, verse 17. speaks of this new adoption in the Spirit. It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can continue through and and just, just, it's a great study. Look at the promises and what we have, the promises that are real right now for us. We are experiencing the Spirit of God and forgiveness and they'll be fulfilled. And then look at the suffering and it's all woven together in Romans 8. So the, the final part of Romans 8, famous section, Verse 29 and following, for we, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So he knew us, he determined to rescue us, and he predestined us to be rescued and changed, made, like Jesus, wonderful promise. In order that we might be firstborn among many brothers, and, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Wonderful promises. And then it continues. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it lists all these things that are real things for us. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's from the Psalms. And it's saying the reality for the believer is that times life is really hard. And we get mistreated or we just suffer the consequences of of the broken world we live in amidst all these wonderful promises, amidst this promise-keeping God, who himself suffered and understands our sorrow and identifies with us. And then continuing to know, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right there, Romans 8. Exodus one picture of the life of faith. And there is a final deliverance. And there is this reality. for us, corporately and personally, I don't have time to cover some of things I want to, but just studying what God did among Chinese Christians is, is a picture of this, right? China is exploding with, with new faith. At one point in time, there were only four million believers in all of China before uh, it closed, in 1949. Now there are about 100 million. Christians. There are more Christians in China than there are Communist Party members at this point in time. That's a, I had a graph on that. Um, and it's just, it's exploding. And yet, we know, we don't have time to show the video, I had a short video, they are bulldozing churches in China right now. So can you imagine the local government saying, eh, you guys, and they'll find a reason, like, oh, well, you're, you don't have sprinklers here, we need sprinklers. And they just bulldozed our building down and then throw me and Toby and Jeff in prison, and there you go. That's the context. They're experiencing that stuff as they grow. It's a picture. And this is something that happens to us personally, by the way, as well. It's not just corporately, but personally. I remember vividly a time in my life, uh, and I've shared it before, I was uh, early on, I was a pastoral intern, and I was really struggling with uh, just despair and a dark night of the soul in my life. I had continual panic attacks, and I was dealing with anxiety all the time. And I thought I should give up. I, I thought, well, this is, how can I be a pastor? You know, if I'm, if I'm struggling like this, there's no way I can help others. And uh, my wise, good friend, Dave Harvey, said, I asked if I could just step down, and he said, nope, I'm not going to do that, at least not yet. And I had five preaching engagements in one month to do that month. Um, so I thought, this, this guy's mean. <laughs> but you know what happened? When I went to prepare for those messages, I encountered God. And I encountered his grace as I read the word, as I studied the word, as I prepared to preach his word. I encountered his presence and his power and a sense of his love and joy in that. Even though, that even that day, I might have an anxiety, a panic attack. I encountered this grace at work in my life, even amidst adversity. And so... It's Exodus 1, right? It's Romans 8. This is reality and it's so important for us to understand this. That our God is faithful. He is a promise keeping God. He has said, I have overcome the world. Take heart, right? Take heart. I have overcome the world. I've been through this. I've overcome. And in me, you will overcome. But that doesn't mean it will be easy. But it does mean he will be faithful. And he will be with us. That's... That's what I want to say from this chapter. It's what I think the chapter says. If if the band could come up and we'll transition. Let me just ask you to reflect right now before we transition to communion. How do you understand God and walking with God? And will you, by His grace, choose to wait? Choose to hope. Choose to wait. Now, by the way... We learned about this last week in our Bible class, Sunday morning. The way that you wait, the way that you find the strength is not in yourself. It's by looking to the promise-keeping God. So Exodus 1 isn't here to say stop being a wimp and wait. It's saying look to the promise-keeping God who works even amidst adversity and who will be faithful. So let's just take a minute, maybe there's something you can reflect on. Before the Lord, and just asking, Can you help me, Lord, to wait? Maybe there's an area of your life that you're particularly struggling with waiting on Him. Right, so just go before Him in prayer, and then Jeff will come up and transition us to communion. What we're going to do now is uh take communion and it's the time that we remember these things that we think about these things that we focus on these things so the ushers can come forward they're going to distribute the uh elements we're going to sing this song and afterwards we're going to take them together so if you're a believer we ask that you uh, encourage you to uh, take it with us if you're not we just ask that you just pass the elements on by